Well, good evening. Take your Bibles. Turn to the book of Nehemiah, if you would, please. But he's a brave man to take requests. I'm not sure how biblical it is to start with the third verse, though. <laughs> I think that may be heretical. I'm not sure. I'll check on that. But request hour stops now. I'm not taking any requests because the first request that you would have is for me not to preach. So we're going to go right on. Nehemiah. Before I begin the message tonight, let me clarify something I said last Sunday night. I said in passing, talking about the fall festival, and then I mentioned how we need to revise and look at things. And some people came away from that thinking that I was saying we're not going to have the fall festival anymore. That was not what I intended to convey. What I intended to convey was that we have to constantly stop and look at the things that we're doing and seeing how effective they are and not expecting the same results that we had years ago. For example, with the fall festival, when we started doing that as a Christian alternative to Halloween, 30 years ago, nobody else in town did it. No one else had anything uh, for the children at that time. Now, since that time, almost every other church in town does so, and the city does so as well. So, you know, you just can't expect to see the, the uh, large crowds that we had at that time, although we still had 280 people through, not counting the workers on uh, fall festival, so we're pleased. We saw a number of people that were not our church people uh, come through. They got an opportunity to hear the gospel, and so whenever we can do that, uh, we're in good shape. Now, tonight we're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter 3. First of all, there's 32 verses. It's long, and we're not going to read it. We're going to skip through it. Uh, and I'm going to bring out some highlights for you. Now, Nehemiah has assessed the problem. He has defined his purpose, and he has motivated the people. Now, it's time to begin the work. It is a monumental task. The walls of Jerusalem have been in ruins for over a 100 years. It was not a task to be undertaken uh, Without consideration, nor would it be carried out by a single person. It would take many hands to the task with a common purpose and desire. So Nehemiah, Nehemiah faced a great challenge, but he had a great faith in a great God. But he would have accomplished very little or nothing had it not been for the great dedication of the people uh, willing to help. The principal teaching, I believe, of chapter 3 is that there is a place of labor for all who are willing to work. When it comes to the work of the Lord, there is really no place for spectators or self-appointed inspectors or critics, but there is always room for workers. Chapter 3 is one of those chapters that appears to largely consist of unpronounceable names of long-forgotten people. It reads much like the book of Chronicles with its long list of difficult-to-pronounce names 
information that seems redundant and a chronology that seems meaningless to us, but it's not. The problem we face when we look at such a long list of names is the temptation to turn the page and to continue the story in the next chapter. And as I studied for this message, I found out that is exactly what many commentaries and preachers do. In attempting to draw spiritual lessons from this chapter, there have been a number of different approaches. Some have drawn significance from the city gates that are named. And I'm not going to spend the time tonight to go through all ten of the city gates. If you would like to have that information, it will be on the website at the end of this sermon. I did do the research. I just don't want to take the time tonight to go in detail on all of the city gates. Having said that, I can't let it go without mentioning at least one of them. And that, of course, is the eastern gate. The eastern gate mentioned in chapter 3 in verse 29 <clears throat> Tradition says that Jesus entered the city on Palm Sunday through that gate. In the 16th century, that gate was sealed up with blocks of stone by the Turkish sultan, Solomon the Magnificent. While Solomon may have taken that decision purely for defensive reasons, it's kind of interesting to consider that Muslims associate this gate with future judgment. And scripture says in Ezekiel 44 and verses 1 through 3, that the Lord will return to Jerusalem through this gate. So it has been suggested that Solomon sealed off the golden gate to prevent the Messiah's return. So we have good reason, I think, to associate this gate with the return of the Lord. But just to be on the safe side, after having sealed the gate up with blocks of stone... They built a large cemetery all in front of the Golden Gate in the belief that the Messiah would not pass through a cemetery due to the Old Testament law that prohibits priests from coming into contact with the dead. Uh, Many Jews believe that the Messiah, however, will be a descendant of King David exclusively, perhaps not of the priestly line. At any rate, it's not going to stop the Messiah from returning, as we all know. Well, some take a great deal of interest in naming the city gates and what they stand for. I'm always a little bit uh, leery to get too involved in allegory. Allegory means uh, the, the, the gates mean this, and the sheep mean this, and the goats mean this. That's only time that I'm really comfortable with that is when it says in scripture the goats mean this and the sheep mean this otherwise it's anybody's opinion Uh, it may be it might be right I don't know but I think there is some danger in going too far with that others have looked at the meaning of the names of the people who are named but this chapter is as I've already said too long and too difficult to read in detail some 32 verses but if you'll follow me I think we can glean some important principles about working together. Again, I believe the primary thing that God would have us to learn from this section of scripture is the importance of working together to accomplish God's purposes. But if you would look with me at verse number one, 
Then Elisha the high priest rose up with his brethren, the priest, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They built as far as the tower of the hundred and consecrated it. Then as far as the tower of Haniel. The work is described in reference to the city's gates. That's the point at which he connects everything. Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day seems to have had 12 gates, although only 10 are mentioned in this chapter. Later we read uh, about the gate of Ephraim and the prison gate. The gates were, as we're well aware, critical points of entry and exit from the city and the most likely spots to see an attack of the enemy. Therefore, the work started at each gate and worked out from there. Nehemiah begins at the sheep gate and proceeds counterclockwise in a circle around the city, ending again at the sheep gate. There is a phrase that's repeated four times in this chapter, I think that we should take note of, and it is the phrase, he repaired opposite of or in front of his house. Although at least one commentary I read said that was a bad thing, that the workers were only interested in their own, uh, what affected them personally, I think I would have to disagree. I think that Nehemiah tells us this for a couple of reasons. First, one would quite naturally be interested in that part of the wall that protected their own home and family. I see nothing innately wrong with that. And second, as far as the labor force is concerned, the individuals were not losing a lot of time getting to and from their work area, thus allowing them more time to really work. Cyril Barber puts it this way, by arranging for each man to work close to his own home, Nehemiah made it easy for them to go to work, to be sustained while they were on the job, and to safeguard those who were nearest and dearest to them. Well, as we begin to look at this tonight, just two major things that I want to look at. First of all, the responsibility of the workers, and we look at the purpose of the work. Nehemiah says in chapter 2 and verse 17, Let us build up the walls of Jerusalem that we know more, that we be no more a reproach. For the most part, the world today ignores the church. If it does pay attention to the church at all, it's usually to condemn it or to mock it. Saying such things, if you are the people of God, why are there so many scandals in the church? If God is so powerful, why is the church so weak? Whether Christians like it or not, we understand a little bit about what Nehemiah's people faced about living in a day of reproach. What keeps a group of believers together is not agreement over every conceivable fine point of the interpretation of Scripture, but a passionate love of God and a desire to see his kingdom furthered. The second thing we note is the pattern for the work. People often make one or more of the following mistakes when they attempt a large project. The first thing is that we often underestimate the task. 
When I start a project at home, I think about what I, how long do I think it should take, and then I double it, and I'm usually pretty close. Secondly, is the desire to put it off till tomorrow, procrastinate, putting the end, the work off until the end. It seems that uh, the people in Jerusalem had been doing that for about 100 years, putting it off. Uh, another temptation is to do the most interesting parts first, leaving the most basic ones uh, to last. Sometimes, number four, we try to do too much at once. A great reason for success in this endeavor, I believe, was that Nehemiah divided the task into manageable chunks or sections. And number five is getting distracted from the task at hand. I'm not going to name anybody in particular, but, you know, say your wife tells you, I'd like for you to dust the furniture. And you begin doing that, but then you notice that her thread needs to be put color-coordinated. And you don't believe I did that, but I did. I know. I have problems. But it did look really good when I got through. The task was accomplished, we are told, in just 52 days by those who were few in number, limited in resources, and surrounded by enemies. They did in 52 days what their brethren had not been able to accomplish in 100 years. They finished the difficult task because they followed the same leader, they kept their eyes on the same goal, and they worked for the glory of God. As Howard Voss says in his commentary, the enemies of the Jews were completely caught off guard by the speed and drive of Nehemiah and his compatriots. Before they could effectively organize to stop the Jews or to destroy their work, the walls and the gates were restored. Then we see the people in the work, and first of all, everyone had a job. In summoning the people of Jerusalem to rebuild their walls and their gates, what we learn from reading this passage is that all the people were involved in the project. The whole city gave itself over for a period of 52 days to the building of the walls and the gates. That portrays for us a very important principle of the New Testament that the ministry of the church in the world today belongs to everyone in the congregation. Sometimes people think that only the pastor or the paid staff are to do the work of evangelizing and teaching and counseling and healing the hurts of others and serving the needy. And because we have followed that practice far too long, The church, and I'm using the big C here, I'm talking about the church overall, is in trouble all over the world. But the ministry, in reality, belongs to the whole congregation. And that's what we see demonstrated in this third chapter. The chapter mentions rulers and priests, men and women, professional craftsmen, people who were goldsmiths and perfume makers. They didn't have a whole lot of experience laying rock, I would imagine, 
but they learn quickly. And even people who did not live in the city, people from Tekel and from Jericho, cities outlying around Jerusalem, also sent uh, their emissaries. Perhaps worthy of mention is a man named Malkiah. He is given the responsibility in verse 14 of repairing the refuse gate or the dung gate. The man is also mentioned in Ezra chapter 10 and verse 31 as one of the men who was confronted by Ezra for the sin of taking a pagan wife. Now this, many years before, apparently, Malchiah had made a mistake, a bad error, sin. But now, apparently, he had put things right with God. And now, years later, he is serving God. In spite of the fact that this is one of the less glamorous places that you could work, it is adjacent to the city dump. Uh, He did not allow that to discourage him or to stop him. Uh, If this is the same man who is mentioned in chapter 3 and verse 31 by the same name, he was a goldsmith by trade, and he also helped to repair another section of the wall. So there is a place for everyone, a job for everyone, for service in the church. Nobody is too dignified, too educated, too young, too old, too unknown, too poor, too rich. When you stop to think about it, what an odd assortment of men Jesus chose as his disciples. His closest associates and ultimately his prime ambassadors, his apostles. There were fishermen with very little formal education. One of these was a hothead who on a regular basis put his mouth in gear before engaging his brain. There was a tax collector, a traitorous collaborator with Rome. And on the other side, there was a nationalistic zealot on the opposite end of the political stratum. There was one who was a dishonest scoundrel and who would in the end betray Jesus for monetary compensation. There was a pragmatic cynic who thought nothing good would come from that stinkhole called Nazareth. There was a doubter who demanded proof before he would believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And there was a persecutor of the church whose aim in life was to destroy the followers of Jesus. It should remember that As we look at this passage tonight, that none of these people were conscripted. No one was paid for their work. They were all volunteers. Another person that is mentioned is Baruch. Baruch is mentioned in verse 20. He is the only worker that is pointed out for his enthusiasm with which he did his work. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 10, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. 
I love the story that's told coming out of World War II. During the defense of the Philippine Bataan Peninsula in World War II, one of the commanding officers lined up a company of his men and asked for a volunteer to go carry out a dangerous mission. Anyone willing to serve in this capacity was to step forward two paces. Glancing down at his memorandum for a moment, he looked up and said in dismay, What, not a single man? Quickly his aide explained, You don't understand, sir. The entire line stepped forward two steps. We need that kind of enthusiasm. We also find that everyone worked together. Different tasks were assigned to different groups. Each did his own task, which was just a part of the whole. Nobody was responsible for the whole task other than Nehemiah, I suppose. If any group refused or failed to build their portion, the rest would have to be, would take up the slack and build the wall, or there would have been one major gap in the wall. You can imagine that a defensive wall with a huge hole in it might not be the best thing in the world. However, having recognized that there was a job for everyone, there are always those who refused to be involved. For example, the nobles of Tekea were unwilling to participate, according to verse number 5. Literally, it says, but the nobles put not their necks to the work of the Lord. Literally, the idea in Hebrew is that they would not submit. They would not bend their necks to do what the Lord wanted them to do. Maybe they thought they had a better plan. Maybe they didn't like the way Nehemiah was doing it. Maybe they just didn't like Nehemiah. But for whatever reason, they refused to be a part. I don't know if you have ever stopped to consider that God keeps records. God keeps records, and I believe God's records will also record goof-offs. God has his record books of service, which will, he will undoubtedly read at the judgment seat of Christ when each person will be rewarded for their own work. And some who shirked will suffer loss, according to 2 Corinthians 5.10. They weren't part of the team. They weren't part of the program. They simply put more work on the shoulders of others. And the most important ability in the work of God is availability. Notice also that Nehemiah didn't spend any time arguing with them, any energy trying to convince them. He simply went on without them. But the fact that the nobles of Tekoa did not participate, did not hinder the men of Tekoa from being involved. Not only did they complete the section of the wall assigned to their nobles in verse 5, but apparently they built another section as well. The whole thing about teamwork. Some Western missionaries in a remote area of the Philippine Islands set up a croquet game in in their front yard, and several of their 
neighbors became interested. And so the missionary explained the rules and gave each one a mallet and a ball and got them going. As the game progressed, opportunity came for one of the players to take advantage of another by knocking that person's ball out of the court. The missionary explained the procedure, but the advice puzzled his Filipino friend. Why would I want to knock his ball out of the court, he asked. So you will win, the missionary said. The short native shook his head in bewilderment. In that hunting and gathering society, people survive not by competing, but by sharing equally in every activity. The game continued, but no one followed the missionary's advice. When a player successfully got his ball through all the wickets, the game was not over for him. He went back and gave aid and advice to his fellow players. As the final player moved toward the last wicket, the game was still very much a team effort. Finally, when the last wicket was played, the whole group shouted, Happily, we won. We won. That's how the church should function. Everyone completed the task assigned to them. Nehemiah has called the people of Judah to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and it's a massive undertaking. It's like telling our world about Jesus. And they were surrounded by people who were hostile to them accomplishing that mention, like our world today. But here's how it got done. The words built and repaired used throughout the text are in the perfect tense, which means they kept on working. They kept on repairing until completion. Each person had an area of responsibility. Each one worked in his own area. The important truth that emerges is that this is God's design to carry out the ministry. God has placed us all strategically where he wants us to be. Your neighborhood, your office, your home is where your ministry should be. That's why God put you there. In John 15, Jesus said to his disciples that he had appointed them. The word means strategically placed them. He had put them in a place where he wanted them to be. This is brought out beautifully here as we watch these people laboring in their own neighborhoods. The second thing we see, not only the responsibility of the workers, but the recognition of the workers. The truth is that most of us like to hear our name mentioned in having accomplished something. Sometimes we're like the guy I read a story about, a guy named Stefan Sigmund from Romania. He had been trying for many years to get his name in the Guinness Book of World Records. His recent attempt went up in smoke. Using a contraption that looked like an air filter for a car, Sigmund managed to smoke 80 cigarettes at one time. Only later did he discover that Guinness no longer accepts these kinds of accomplishments. Another time, he ate 29 hard-boiled eggs in four minutes. Unfortunately, Guinness quit printing gluttony reports many years ago. He also jumped into a lake from a 135-foot cliff 
only to find out that the record for diving from a fixed point had already been set at 176 feet. We just like to have our name in print. We like to be recognized for accomplishing something. Uh, He didn't reach his goal. But 38 individual workers are named in this chapter. And 42 different groups are identified. Little did any of those people, I think, have realized that their names were going to be preserved in Scripture. We won't find many of these names anywhere else but here. If they were not recorded here, we'd have no knowledge of them. But God still would. The Lord doesn't forget his faithful workers. When you labor and it seems that nobody notices, we need to remember two things. Number one, what we do for the eyes of men and their approval brings only a temporary recognition and reward. What we do for the Lord's eyes and for his notice and his approval will never be forgotten. I think it's worthy of note, though, in this long list of names, there is one name that's missing. Nehemiah's. Nehemiah's own name is not listed. He was as active as anyone, of course, even more so. But he was not one of those who was forever pushing himself forward to be recognized. Whoever else may forget or overlook our works, we can be content with knowing that Scripture tells us in Hebrews 6.10, For God is not unjust as to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So, first of all, what we do for the eyes of men and their approval only has a temporary recognition. Secondly, God doesn't require that we be successful as the world defines success. But he does require that we be faithful. As the Apostle Paul said in his letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 4, 2, Moreover, it is required in stewards that ye be found faithful. This, of course, means sticking to the job when quitting would be easier. Doing work that even if nobody notices or commends or thanks us. Keeping serving even if you think you're doing more than your fair share. Refusing to allow any other attractions or interests or pursuits to swerve you from your loyalty to Jesus Christ. And doing all that you do, your studies, your vocation, your ministries, not for the praise and publicity of men, but as if you were doing them for the Lord himself. In closing, let me just say, this is the time of year when we start seeing the geese making their way south. One of the fascinating things about geese is they normally fly in a V formation. You ever notice that one side is usually longer than the other? You know why? It has more geese in it. Sorry, that's my only joke for the evening. <laughs> geese often cover thousands of miles before reaching their designation, and they would only get there if they worked together. Here are some of the facts about their flight patterns. By flying as they do, the members of the flock create an upward air current 
for one another, and thus they conserve energy. By flying in a V formation, scientists estimate that the whole flock can fly 70% further with the same amount of energy than if each goose flew alone. Another benefit in the V formation is that it's easy to keep track of every bird in the group. Flying in formation may assist with the communication and coordination within the group. Fighter pilots often use that formation for the very same reason. When one goose gets sick or wounded, two fall out of formation with it and follow it down to help and protect it. They stay with the struggler until he is able to fly again. The geese in the rear of the formation are the ones who do the honking. It is their way of announcing that they are following and everything is going well. The repeated honks encourage those in the front to stay at it. As I think about this, one lesson stands out above all others. It's the natural instinct of geese to work together. Whether you're flapping, helping, or simply honking, the flock is in it all together, which enables them to achieve what they have set out to do. Let's bow for a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father, I want to thank you for this evening. Thank you for the time we've been able to spend here together. Ask, Lord, that you would be in this, our time of invitation. Pray, Lord, that uh, you would just have your way and your will in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.